0: Welcome to Disability Talks, a podcast produced by Abilities in Motion. I'm your host, Shelley Hauser. Join us for real conversations and no-nonsense talk from everyday people with disabilities living their most independent everyday lives. Tune in for the latest news surrounding disability, accessibility, and independence, where conversations aren't dissed and stories that need to be told aren't missed. So let's talk. Today's guests are Professor Ann Lawson. Dr. Maria Orchard, and Yeva Esquita from the School of Law at the University of Leeds in England. Professor Lawson is the Joint Director of the Interdisciplinary Center at the Disability Studies and Principal Investigator of the Inclusive Public Space Project. Dr. Orchard and Dr. Esqueda are researchers working on the project. Their backgrounds are in law and sociology, respectively. All three of our guests' research interests include disability law and policy, Accessibility and Inclusion, and Human Rights. They are currently working on a project called Inclusive Public Space, Law, Universality, and Difference in the Accessibility of Streets, in partnership with the Burton Blatt Institute at the University of Syracuse. And that's where you, our listeners, are needed. Join us today to find out more. Welcome, ladies. How are you? Good. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Yes. Thank you
1: so much for having us. Very well. Thank you.
0: What drew you to the field of disability-related law, policy, and advocacy? Yeah, so um, I became, I started to lose my sight
2: at the age of seven. And um, so, and then gradually, it was a gradual process losing it. So by the time I was studying in university, I'd I'd really lost all my useful vision. Um, So obviously, I'd been navigating through life as a disabled person. And I studied law in university and there was no disability law on the syllabus, nothing about disability really at that time. Um, And then, yeah, gradually when we started introducing disability discrimination law in the UK, I thought this is so exciting Law, I can bring my two kind of life passions, law and disability together. So
3: that's, that's me. Yes. Thanks so much. Um, so I come from um, I, I'm from the U S. Uh, well, I'm from Canada originally, but I'm also from the U S. and I went to law school there. And my areas of interest is always public interest law, um, that type of thing. Um, but I never actually practiced. I was very interested in um, human rights law, international law, um, equality, non discrimination. Um, so I ended up doing my master's degree in Sweden. And eventually, I ended up in Bristol, where I did my PhD um, in disability studies, uh, specifically on issues of access to justice, um, um, which brought together my interest in terms of um, equality, non-discrimination law, and also disability studies. Um, I looked at the experiences of disabled women with legal systems in England and the U.S., um, and their experiences with regional, reasonable adjustments, accommodations, um, so on and so forth. So, for me, um, coming to join the project was just a natural next step, um, coming up to Leeds.
1: Uh, so, my interest in disability and accessibility related really policy lies within two inter- interrelated strands. And my primary professional background is in social work. And as a social worker, I was. I was always interested in how should society systems and relationships work so that they empower individuals, uh, in, that they empower individuals and work for the advantage instead of demanding or expecting them to change in a situation of crisis. Uh, so, and the second strand comes from my uh, work at the um, academic network for European disability experts, where I worked as an assistant to Professor Jonas Ruskos. So the network supported the European Commission and the EU member states by providing an independent scientific advice, analysis, and information on EU and national disability policies and legislations. The width and the depth of the network activities enabled me to understand how powerful policies and legislations are and can be in shaping people's lives. And so the synergy between my social work position, position as a social worker, and the experience with uh, disability policy analysis uh, brought me to Leeds to do my PhD, uh, and I was really very excited to join the project because it brings it brings together uh, all my professional and, and and personal values.
0: So it seems like for each one of you, it, it's meshing all of your your life experiences and your professional experiences and interest all together and you've all found each other. Now did you folks know each other before this project in any way? Um, so I knew Yeva. Um,
2: I was on the scientific board of the academic network of experts on disabilities that Yeva mentioned. So I knew Yeva's work well and I knew that it was the reports from Lithuania were always excellent. <laughs> so I um, I knew Yeva was very gifted from even that stage and then I was lucky enough to be one of Yeva's supervisors when she came to do her PhD but I didn't know Maria before.
3: No but I knew you. (laughs) (laughs) So Anna's course is published so reasonable assessments a lot of literature in the UK as Anna has quite literally written the book on it so I was very familiar with her research and her work and I used it a lot in my PhD so um great then to be able to come up to Leeds and work with her.
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, it's a bit of a dream team, actually, especially Yeva and Maria have been there from the beginning and it's, it's just been wonderful having them both.
0: It is kind of good because you already know each other's work a little bit and therefore collaborating on this project, it comes naturally. How did the study come about actually for your team? If you guys Sort of knew each other's work already. Well, actually, yes, that was relevant um, because I knew Yeva's work,
2: and I knew Yeva had a lot, a lot. You know, that was where her passions lay in accessibility. Um, and I was, I was also really interested in accessibility and the way the law, and policy, and personal experience interact with that. So, I think knowing Yeva was there was something in the back of my mind or the the front of my mind, actually, in crafting the proposal that led to this project. Um, But what, so it came through a a grant from the European Research Council, which which I applied for, and I applied for it after um, spending some time as special advisor to a parliamentary committee in the UK which was looking at uh, this disability in the built environment. And and the way these parliamentary committees work in the UK is that there's a request for evidence that goes out. So lots of um, general members of the public can um, send their comments in to this committee. And there were huge numbers of of, um, testimonies that came in from from organisations and from individuals, particularly concerned with disability and older age to this, this inquiry, um, and they were incredibly um, powerful, emotive, um, shocking, sad. I mean, I, I'm a disabled person and I've, I'm used to a lot of these problems, but sometimes hearing them from other people's perspectives and the impact it's had on their lives, is, 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 um, it takes you by surprise.
0: You know, I, I can say we have the ADA law in America here for what, 31, 32 years. And just the other day, I was dropping off uh, a student of mine. And it was in the park. And there were some new um, portable, portable commodes, loos in, in the, in the park, in the park, which is great uh, for people that are walking and just have to go. They have little kids playing. But this goes back, Anna, to what you're saying. It never ceases to surprise me that both loos or toilets were put in the handicap spot. And there's one of two accessibility spots. And I'm like, really? (laughs) This law has been around 32 years in America. I looked at my husband and I said, okay, well, I guess I have to call the township tomorrow and, and take care of it. And it's a head scratcher. It is, yeah. And you'd think, in a way, it's an issue
2: you'd think we would have sorted by now, as you say, because we've had, you know, that law came about through a lot of campaigning, as it did in the UK in our equivalent, which particularly focus on transport issues, actually, in both cases and the built environment. And you'd, you'd think, therefore, that would have been sorted out before everything else, but it doesn't stay still. There's there's always, it's a really fascinating Issue actually. And one of the articles that inspired me um, on this issue was the article by Jacobus Tenbroke, who's, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he used to be the the chair of the National Federation of the Blind in the United States. And he was also a wonderful legal academic. And he wrote a fabulous article in 1966, so that long ago, on um, the right to live in the world, which really looked at the way law, and that was before the ADA. So the way negligence law, you know, tort law, criminal law shaped the expectations and the behavior of people using streets and cities. And, and our project, it looks at equality law, but it also looks at those other laws and the way they operate together and whether they actually undermine each other or reinforce each other in their, the messages they're sending out.
0: You talked about um, involving other countries. So this is a worldwide project that's actually looking at the differences in cities around the world and the accessibility of the streets and transportation. Um, tell us what other countries have been involved and for how long,
3: Maria? Um, so the project itself started in early 2019. Um, and it's going to run until late 2023. Um, and so, but our U.S.-based um, fieldwork is probably going to be ongoing until late, later this year, 2021. Um, um, so the five countries are the UK, um, the United States, uh, India, Kenya, and the Netherlands. So we're going to be talking to pedestrians and stakeholders um, in each of these, in, in each of these cities. Um, sorry, 10 cities in the five countries. Um, and then in the UK, just to focus on the UK and the US, um, Leeds is one of our chosen cities, partly because we wanted to engage with our community. We're in Leeds. Um, But also just, um, there's a lot, it would be interesting for the project, given the degree of development going on um, around the city in an attempt to make it more pedestrian friendly. And then we also have Glasgow that we included in the UK. And then in the US, um, Syracuse and Atlanta are two of our cities, the two cities, partly again to engage with our community because we're partnered with the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. We're also working with um, the Southeast ADA Center in the Atlanta area.
0: Yeva, tell us about Atlanta and your involvement with Atlanta and Syracuse. What exactly, what type of persons are you looking to help with this project? What are you asking them to do? And and how can people get involved with this project for you guys?
1: So we're looking for uh, people in Syracuse and Atlanta who use streets and public spaces as pedestrians and experience problems and difficulties when using these streets and public spaces. So, and these issues are particularly important to uh, people with disabilities, including those using mobility scooters, uh, people with long uh, or short-term physical or mental health conditions, learning difficulties, older people, pregnant females, as well as parents and carers who in their street journeys are accompanied by pushchairs, buggies, uh, wheelchairs, small children or disabled relatives, for example. With regard to problems and difficulties experienced when using streets, we have a very, very broad approach and we are interested in barriers that are not just physical or structural ones like potholes or lack of dropped curbs or inaccessible street crossings, for example. While these types of barriers are important and we are keen to talk to people who face them, We are also interested in interactional barriers. So with regard to problems and difficulties experienced when using streets, we are interested, we have a very broad approach and we are interested in barriers that are not just physical or structural ones like potholes, lack of road curbs, or inaccessible street crossings, for example. While these types of barriers are really very important and we are keen to talk to people who face them, we are also interested in more interactional barriers like Pedestrians' interaction with vehicles, with cyclists, with electric cars, with e-scooters, as well as other, other pedestrians. And we also came to hear from people who experience some sort of situational barrier, so to speak, like traffic noise or lack of traffic noise, crowds, uh, poor or absent street lighting at certain times of day or seasons even. And also COVID this pandemic has highlighted some very timely problems and the problems that the project is dealing with because it affects how we interact with streets and public space, partially because uh, there have been some rapid emergency measures put in place to allow more social distancing to take place, for example. However, uh, often these processes do not involve consultation with disabled people's organizations and accessibility provisions are overlooked. And as an example, more and more shops and cafes take their furniture outdoors, uh, which often is problematic to people with vision and mobility impairments as well as older people. And in the same way, markings aimed at encouraging to keep encouraging uh, keeping social physical distancing are often difficult to negotiate for people with vision impairments. So very often when people get in touch with us, they sometimes say that, well, these are the issues that I have to deal with when I'm out about, out and about, but I'm not sure if they are significant enough for me to be involved in the project. So let me reassure that for us, every experience matters because uh, the better we understand the situation or, or the more parts of the puzzle we have, so to speak, the more likely we'll be able to develop uh, outputs and tools that reflect the real situation and are useful for achieving the change.
0: For our listeners, we will be posting all of their contact information on our show description, our episode description, so that you can look for it and find those uh, hyperlinks right there already set. Um, Yeah, this reminds a point that I was writing a, a paper recently and was reading that the Department of Justice here in the United States was informed to take down any formal pages that regarded disability accessibility or disability rights off the White House page back in 2016, when our then President Trump was inaugurated. Uh, In his last two years of presidency, there was an increase of 177% lawsuits to the ADA for lack of accessibility and those laws being upheld. And I found that to be a very sad but interesting statistic that in two years, it grew 177% in lawsuits, it was over 11,000. And I'm very proud that there are those lawsuits because it means that we as a society, we as a community of disability persons uh, are, are fighting, and we know our rights and we're exercising those rights and we are not intimidated or feel that we cannot raise our voices and be heard. Maria, what do you hope to find out with this study? Um,
3: Yes. So we have, um, we actually have three aims or objectives. One of them is the the experiential, and this is what Yeva was touching on, which is, you know, we want to advance understanding of the causes and the impact of street exclusion. Um, So we want to understand what features um, are experienced as exclusionary and by whom, um, what, what what the effect of these barriers has on the participant's life or the life of their child. So that involves um, talking to our pedestrian participants. And then the, another one is the perceptual objective, which is um, to advance understanding of whether and why exclusionary public space is regarded as a minority issue and to foster greater awareness and solidarity. And I think this links on to what you were just saying about um, the issues of accessibility, um, you know, moving away from this idea of it being a minority issue um, and, and to and to um, impress the importance of the topic on the general public. Um, and we'll circle we'll back to that objective um, later on. I'll, I'll talk to you about it a little bit more. And then the third objective is our legal objective. And Anna's already touched on this again, um, talking about the legal context, but I'm just going to talk to you a little bit more because it's really interesting in terms of Advancing understanding of how the law is being used and how it could be used um, to make public space more more inclusive um, and accessible. So in this regard, we're working with our country advisors. So we have our partner universities and country advisors in each of the five countries um, developing legal reports. And so this is examining law, relevant law and policy on the national, local, state or city level. And so this might include... Um, any legal or policy initiatives um, that cover the issue of exclusionary public space. And so some of these laws include um, non-discrimination and other equality based laws could be could factor in here. Planning law, criminal law, um, not to mention a law of tort, negligence, which can be used for somebody has been injured. A pedestrian has been injured um, while using walking on the sidewalk, we're looking at the different ways that um, legal systems respond to city streets that are poorly designed and poorly managed, um, and also consider how these laws are being enforced, and how is the right of access to justice understood in each of the five countries. And then also ask, you know, how effective are different types of law when it comes to addressing inaccessible or exclusionary streets, sidewalks, public spaces? I mean, is the way to go um, anti-discrimination law? Uh, and could, could that go further in terms of ensuring equal access to streets? Um, and then, because the, the ultimate, one of the ultimate hopes with this project and what we intend to do is to develop legal guides um, so that pedestrians are aware of their legal entitlements and, and that they um, have you know, practical tools um, in terms of how to use those legal entitlements, how to enforce their rights.
0: Are any of these uh, countries eventually going to also be partnering with or tying in with transportation systems and or top governor, government officials like governors or the president or prime ministers
3: of these countries? Goodness. Well, that would be fantastic if it were to Anna. Do you have, would you like to chime in here? <laughs>
2: That's our ambition, but I don't know whether we'll reach it. And we're also working at the UN level. We, we, um, so all the countries apart from the US have ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So we're working, you know, with, at the government level through that international framework.
0: So my other question is, it's great that we're coming up with these anti-discriminatory accessibility laws that you're hoping to develop through this, but how can we, as a disability community, tie into the able-bodied community and flip the script and educate them to understand how to, how to make them understand the importance of not parking in an accessible space, not parking there and just saying, you don't look handicapped enough to be using your blue card or your placard, you know, and... and I, I think it's a mental shift that able-bodied society really needs to have, and it's great to have all these laws in place. But look what happened with the ADA. The ADA has been wildly successful, but when you look at Title One, which talks about reasonable accommodations and hiring equal hiring practices for employment for persons with disabilities, it's never been upheld. And I can hear time and time again, like Anna was saying, a person with a disability applied for a job, and, and one one young lady in particular recently said. The minute I stopped being proud of my mental health and wellness and stopped mentioning it in interviews, I got hired. Now, how sad is that? And what do we do to flip the script that able-bodied society learns to get it, learns to get on board and, and uphold these laws, uphold these changes. And because it doesn't, you know, these curb cuts and these cobblestone streets don't just affect persons with disabilities and wheelchair users. It affects older folks that are able-bodied. It affects young mothers with strollers and walkers. It affects people with luggage. So how do we get them to see that there are over 61 million of us and that we welcome a new person with a new disability at any time, as Ed Roberts used to say? That's such a great question, Shelley, and that's. I think that's one of the. So the perceptual
2: aim of the project that Maria was talking about, um, it is that's that ties into this this question, Um, and we we don't purport to know the answers. So we're we're hoping to work with the people that we're interviewing to to draw on their ideas, their suggestions. And we'll be using the, the film footage and the stories, the recordings of their stories um, to put together films and podcasts and things to try and um, give them a bigger platform for um, telling people exactly this and the impact of it.
0: Because this is a really big sticking point in my bottom side. I will just <laughs> tell you this, that <laughs> as a person growing up with my own congenital disability, it's. It's something that I really think able-bodied society really needs to deal with and just get on board because they've had a very long time to deal with it and understand. It was a great question. I think with that, we're going to take a short commercial break and we'll be back.
3: Abilities Emotion is a Pennsylvania-based nonprofit organization dedicated to helping individuals with disabilities live their lives on their own terms. Abilities Emotion strives to eliminate psychological stereotypes, physical barriers, and outdated attitudes that prevent social and civic inclusion as well as promote the independent living movement to empower, educate, and advocate for individuals with disabilities. For more information about programs and services Abilities Emotion provides, call 610 376 Or visit our website at www.abilitiesinmotion.org.
0: And welcome back, listeners. We are here with Dr. Maria Orchard and Dr. Yeva Esquita and Professor Ann Lawson from England. I wanted to start back with Yeva. Yeva, what key points have you learned so far? How long has the study been going on so far? And uh, what have you learned so far to date?
1: So the project itself started yearly uh, 2018. And then uh, because of the pandemic, we had to rethink all of the methodology, the whole project itself, actually. So I think we started maybe a little like the actual fieldwork uh, around what, like 12, 11 months ago. Uh, and so far, we we we've been working in uh, two cities in the UK, two cities in the Netherlands, and two cities in the United States, which is which is Atlanta and, and Syracuse. And we have engaged with more than one hundred pedestrian participants in total. And these conversations, interviews, and stories that we had with people, they provided us with some emerging insights into their experiences of using streets, as well as very interesting uh, resilience and coping strategies as well. The bar- and the barriers fall under two broad categories, physical and structural ones like street furniture, poorly maintained sidewalks or snow on sidewalks, like for example, in Atlanta, or underpasses that lack proper railings to protect pedestrians from motor vehicles, or lack of accessible street crossings or like beeping uh, streetlights. Uh, we also uh, keep hearing about interactional barriers like behavior of other pedestrians and interaction with vehicles, cyclists, and, and uh, now it's becoming more and more popular, uh, electric scooters. Um, so it's interesting that like, each barrier is experienced differently by different pedestrians, by different people. And as an example, a trash bin left on a sidewalk uh, might cause uh, injuries for people with, with vision uh, impairments or force wheelchair users and people with, with buggies to go on the road and risk, and in some instances, even risk to be injured by vehicles or cyclists. Uh, so, and on the other hand, a bench in the middle of a pedestrianized street may cause inconvenience for a person with vision impairment. But at the same time, the same bench may provide a person with a mobility impairment and or a or parent with an opportunity to rest or relax after dealing with other street barriers that, that, that they have to face. And also, uh, barriers have different states of existing within time. Some of them are temporary and some of them are permanent. So, for example, Cafe out of furniture or roadworks, usually by people, are seen as temporary barriers and a lamppost in the middle of the sidewalk is a permanent one. And the majority of our pedestrians, especially in in Atlanta and uh, uh, Syracuse, they find it easier to negotiate permanent barriers because they know that they're always there. They know what to expect and they know how to cope with them. The opposite situation is with uh, temporary obstacles because they are unpredictable. One day, a sidewalk is smooth and accessible, and the next day, there's a poorly indicated hole in it as a, as a result of gas maintenance works, for example. And unfortunately, uh, these, these are the barriers, these temporary barriers are the ones that cause the most uh, of the injuries and accidents uh, because
3: pedestrians have no control over them. We will be developing um, tools and guides about um, legal rights, legal entitlements um, and issues surrounding that. But as Anna mentioned, we're also going to be looking to produce tools and guides on strategies for activism and political engagement. And so in order to inform these tools, we are um, drawing on the experiences of pedestrians who have used the law, who have engaged in um, activism or advocacy. Uh, But we're also looking to connect with three groups of stakeholders. So these are lawyers as one group, um, planners and policymakers as a second group, And then activists as a third group. So for the lawyers, we're looking to um, talk to them about um, what types of law they believe to be useful in terms of um, enforcing the accessibility of public space. And, you know, in terms of bringing legal action to seek compensation or redress if injury or exclusion occurs. Um, for planners and policymakers, we'd like to hear their thoughts on state or city laws and or policies that are aimed at making pedestrian environments um, more safe and more accessible, and how clear or effective um, such laws and policies are. And then lastly, when it comes to activists, we'd like to learn about activist work um, and mechanisms, strategies, tactics, if you will, that have worked into um, further the aims of the project to make streets and sidewalks and public spaces more accessible and more inclusionary, um, and also to, to, to see how we can foster shared concern about these issues um, and to develop you know, solidarity amongst the general public. Disability
0: discrimination laws in the U.S. and the U.K. actually go far enough on the issue at the moment? So, yeah, as Maria said, we've, we've
2: had um, extensive legal law and policy reports really from the US and the UK and um, actually going back to the reasons for choosing these countries, one of the reasons why I was really keen that the US should be part of it was because of the apparent effectiveness of the ADA compared with the, with the effectiveness of the Equality Act in the UK. So the, the enforcement machinery we have, the Equality Act is, is very strong in theory in the UK, but the enforcement machinery is very poorly resourced. And there's a lot of um, disincentives and barriers around enforcement. And that actually came through in our work uh, with the pedestrian participants as well, I think, very few of them would would think about bringing a lawsuit under the equality act some of them have tried and had big problems and ended up losing um partly because of the complexity of the law and the difficulty of yeah the difficulty of enforcing it and the difficulty of getting support with enforcing it um so i think that's that's better in the in the us um but the our um us colleagues who who wrote the the law and policy report for the US did draw attention to the fact that it could be better on enforcement even in the US. um, So that there were, especially at the local level, actually, that um, often there's less access to resources or support for bringing actions at the local level, um, particularly in small towns and things than there is in a bigger city areas or at the state level. Um, And I think... Yes, the obviously the the other thing that the the Americans with Disabilities Act is so good at is is working with these accessibility regulations, um, and we've got very we haven't got any of those in the UK. We've got a code of practice which gives general guidance, but there's there's no enforceable accessibility regulations really in the UK. So again, we we have a lot to learn, I think, from the US on this in this regard. Um, but again, our US colleagues drew attention to, to areas where the, it would be helpful to have more regulations, more guidance. And e-scooters was one of those areas actually, that there's nothing at federal level at the moment um regulating the the, the use of e-scooters on pavements and you know the, the storage of dockless e-scooters and things on pavements. And we know that's causing a problem in some US cities, as it is in the UK. Um, and that's that's being a bit of a challenge for law across the globe, I think, at the moment.
0: Maria, I know that you're looking for pedestrians, especially in Syracuse and Atlanta to get in touch with you. But what other types of persons are you looking to interview in these cities here in the U.S.?
3: I had one thing, if I will, which is I think Anna kind of touched on this. But also um, that, you know, once later on in the project, um, once we're done with the work and we're done with the stakeholder events, we will be doing um, community building events in each of the cities. Um, so we will, you know, we, we will be in Syracuse, we'll be in Atlanta, we'll be presenting the tools and the guides that we've developed from the project. Um, we'll be, be able and so all our pedestrian participants, will be able to bring them together if they so wish so that they can, you know, meet each other. But also that you can really see what we're doing and, um, and, and see where their contribution has has gone and, and the types of um, the types of um, differences we're trying to make um, and also public lectures as well.
0: Yeah. And it's a win win. It's a it's a win for every country and every participant. And it's you know, not only for now, but for our future generations of persons that need accessibility. So what's next for this project once you're done wrapping up and interviewing everybody? So I, I think some of that work that Maria has just mentioned. So so really, um, well,
2: obviously we want to produce academic papers and really dig into the, the findings that we, we're getting, but we want to, yeah, make it put together films, um, podcasts, uh, virtual reality f- films, which we'll also show in a we, we have a pedestrian simulator in the university, so it's like a a cave experience. So using some of the video footage and stories for that. So various awareness raising um, tools that we want to produce, but it's not enough to produce them. It's you know we we want to make these to make a difference, and that will only happen if we if if we really have. Um, buy-in and support and collaboration um, from our participants and the wider networks.
0: Yeva, I wanted to wrap up our podcast today and find out where can our listeners learn more about this project and how to connect with all of you on this project.
1: Uh, One of the ways is uh, to check out our our website, which is inclusivepublicspace.leads.ac.uk. Um, also people uh, can uh, email us uh, and our email address is uh, ips.project at leads.ac.uk. Uh, and the third way uh, people can can get in touch with us with us they can uh, call us or message us uh, and the phone number is six six seven eight seven zero one. 3771. Uh, And when it comes to uh, all the arrangements, we are flexible and will accommodate as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Did you mention, and do you have a Facebook page on this as well? So our Twitter is
1: IPS underscore leads and our Facebook page is called ips.leads.
0: I think that wraps up our show for today. Thank you so much to Yeva, Anna, and Maria for being here from Leeds in the UK to teach us about this program and the importance of accessibility worldwide. Thank you so much, ladies, for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Shelley. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. So for our listeners, thank you for listening worldwide. And don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button so you never miss an episode of Disability Talks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Disability Talks. Want to keep the conversation going? Then visit our website at abilitiesinmotion.org or connect with us on social media. And remember, don't diss my ability.